This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is... Let me know if we get that audio, Shaman. The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to Hour 3 in the Freedom Hut. Some of you, I know it's your favorite hour. Others, it's Hour 1, and there's there's an Hour 2 posse out there, too. They, they love it, so Hour 2 squad. Um, you can pick any of them, all of them. Hour three, usually uh, when I would fit in a buck brief, not going to do that today or probably tomorrow, but maybe we'll do a third hour deep dive, NATSEC, all things national security that we haven't been talking about much, including what's going on in Mosul, by the way. That operation is still ongoing, very tough fighting against the Islamic State, uh, not getting a lot of coverage, things in Afghanistan heading south. I mentioned the kidnapping video. Uh, A lot to talk about the national security front. Not going to get to it today, though, but just want to put a pin in that. And get you excited for some upcoming buck briefs. Deep diving. Uh, tomorrow's going to be quite a freestyle. I mean, the show's going to be the show's going to be the dopeness tomorrow. I don't know what else to say. It's going to be awesome. I like to think it's that way every day, but let's be honest. Some days are amazing. Other days are just like real good. So, Obamacare. Senate yesterday voted to begin the process to repeal uh, Obamacare. You had senators voting 51 to 48 to approve a budget resolution. And that budget resolution is sort of the beginning of the end of the Affordable Care Act, according to Republicans. House leaders are going to take it up tomorrow. So the Senate uh, voted on 19 amendments. Uh, Of course, Democrats who don't have the votes to stop because this is on the budget side. Remember, you need 60 to break a filibuster except on budgetary issues and through budget reconciliation. So Republicans have a clear path as long as they're using the budget as the mechanism, and they have taken some steps. This is where, of course, a lot of the argument now is going to go. You've got Democrats, according to USA Today, saying that repealing the law will strip millions of Americans of health insurance, uh, leave people with pre-existing conditions unable to find coverage, and increase the nation's budget deficit by $353 billion over the next 10 years as the tax and fee provisions that pay for Obamacare are gutted. Okay, a lot here. First off, Paul Krugman, who is known as a a good economist, but a terrible political editorialist, I I think that's the most fair way to describe him. He used to do good work as an economist, and now he's just writes screeds for the New York Times and hides behind, oh, I was a good economist, and now I can tell you everything about politics. It doesn't work that way, Tommy... Uh, I'm sorry, Paul E., not Tommy. I don't know why. I was saying Tom Friedman for a second. Uh, he now is concerned about the deficit. You're going to hear a lot of this. And this falls into that broad category of things that the Democrats did not care at all about while Obama was in office. The budget is going to be 
we're going to be 20 trillion, not the budget, the deficit's going to be 20 trillion dollars very soon. Well, it doesn't matter. We need more spending. Remember, the argument that the left was making for why Obama's trillion-dollar stimulus didn't work was that it wasn't big enough, that they didn't spend enough of your money on a whole lot of stuff, including pet projects that the left just wanted to ram through one way or another. That was the argument they were making. Obama didn't spend enough of the public's money in a partisan fashion. And remember, the trillion-dollar stimulus package was different from the bailout of the banks, although for political reasons, Democrats like to conflate those two things. TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program, different from the stimulus. And so now they're going to tell you that anything that adds to the deficit is courting catastrophe. Anything that makes us go further into debt is an enormous a red flag posing tremendous systemic risks to the economy. And the whiplash on this is very pronounced. Paul Krugman, Krugman and others, I'm sure, if we were to look it up, but Krugman, I've seen it, was writing before Hillary's defeat because he assumed she would win. Deficits don't pay attention. Once Hillary gets in office, full steam ahead. Spend, spend, spend. Infrastructure, infrastructure. Trump won. And now it's, whoa, whoa, you can't change any government programs and add to the add to the debt. Sorry, did I say I was I think I might have been using debt and deficit uh, interchangeably there for a second. I didn't mean to do that. Right. We all know debt is the overall aggregate number that is owed. Deficit is the year in, year out shortfall between spending and taxes or as they call it, revenue. So the debt is enormous. The debt is 20 trillion dollars. I think I might have said deficit before. Apologies for that. Uh, the debt is 20 trillion dollars and it is getting bigger. It's an astonishing version of events you get from the Obama administration that after spending a trillion dollars a year more than we were taking in in taxes, or that the government, I should say, was taking in in taxes, that when they broke it down or they took it down to three or four hundred billion, they would brag about how, oh, well, the, we, we've, cut, we've cut the deficit by more than anybody else. Well, that's like saying I was spending $20,000 a month on my credit card into debt, and now I'm only spending $10,000 a month that's a 50% reduction. I'm doing great. Well, no, you're, you're still spending yourself into oblivion. It's very bad. So uh, you're going to see a lot of this now, that anything that's ch any changes to Obamacare are going to be adding to the debt, and, well, the, the, de the deficit this year and the debt going forward, and this is terrible, and there's going to be a meltdown in the global economy unless Republicans are stopped. And, and the turnaround in this line of analysis is very rapid months ago oh no hillary should have spent everything now it's so it's they like spending when their guy or gal does it and they hate it when our guy or gal does it this is pretty straightforward on the so that's one aspect of obamacare that's going to be a very dishonest debate a very dishonest discussion then on the pre-existing medical conditions component here i've got to say this was the most genius thing that democrats did with obamacare because there is a and i agree with it there is a moral argument that a society such as ours, as wealthy as ours, should have the mechanisms in place. Keep in mind the whole healthcare system is hyper-regulated and it's all a giant series of government intrusions into the market anyway. And that people with pre-existing conditions were left out in the cold is, is wrong. And, Republic, and Trump has said, Republicans have said, they will find a way to cover people with pre-existing conditions. I 
right now, take them at their word, but this is very important because that's where the Democrats were able to, on one issue, seize the moral high ground in a way that overshadowed all the other terrible crap they were doing with this law. All the other uh, dislocations and all the other uh, financial burdens that they were putting on people and the deterioration in health care, all of that stuff, right? So I think that's very important to note as well. They need to make sure they keep pre-existing condition coverage somehow. And so that's a, that's a, a very important aspect of this. And I would, I would just say that this is something that we all will talk about, and it should be a focus of ours because health care is such a stress, and it shouldn't be which should be much more clear-cut what you're paying. This idea that every time, and I don't know what your experiences with this are, but every time you go to the doctor, you may get a bill. I got a bill recently. I went to a doctor in system, in network, for a, an office visit, and I still got a bill for $200. And I'm say, and they're saying, oh, well, because of the doctor, and I'd already paid my deductible law for the year and everything. And, and I'm looking at this this jargon on the back of it and i have a decent reading comprehension I was like, what so the doctor added in charges for an office visit where no procedure was done but just decided to charge more money than the plan allows and that's my fault now i have to pay but it's in network it's in, i mean just the, the the fact that you're always playing you feel like you're playing roulette every time you go to a doctor's office is just nonsense part of this is the american people need to realize that we're going to have to the same way that people are spending more money now going out to restaurants than ever before and doing these things, healthcare is something you're going to have to pay for a lot of the time. Your day to day healthcare, day to day maintenance of your health is not going to be here's 10 bucks or here's 20 bucks and I never have to think about this again. That's not actually a good thing. It feels like a good thing in the beginning and it feels like a good thing if you manage to keep that, if you're one of the few Americans who can stay in the same job for a long time and never have these switches. But for a lot of the rest of us, it's this anxiety that you have to deal with uh, that every time you go see a doctor and every and especially once you start, if you have a if you have to have an operation, you have a procedure, you're just kind of holding your breath and hoping that it's covered. And I, I spend I spend all this time doing paperwork for reimbursements. It's just a mess. It's a mess. And it doesn't have to be this way. Think about the complexity of so many other consumer markets and the sorts of things that are being done in them, the advances that are being made all the time. Uh, it was really interesting. I saw on Twitter recently someone at the same place. It was kind of a it was a cool visualization in the same spot holding up a a photo of a computer from the 1950s, I think, which it looked like they were you know, loading a submarine in a crater something like that on into a building and then uh, hundreds of computers on one tiny chip held between fingers we've seen these enormous advances and yet as people are pointing out you still have EpiPens cost I don't know five or six hundred dollars each uh, you go to this store and you, you need to get um, you know, you've got I, I don't know uh, what's the um, What's the, 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 the people get on their arms, the skin condition? I can't even think of what it's called right now. Psoriasis? Is it plaque psoriasis? And if your insurance doesn't cover it, there's a little tube of stuff that you put on your arms so you don't have a skin problem. It's like $600, right? Or you go to the doctor and, and you get a prescription for, uh, you, they think you've got a stomach bug or something, and they give you, 
Antibiotics, if it's covered, it's 10 bucks. If not, it's, you know, 200 or so. It's just crazy. It's crazy. It shouldn't be this way. And tinkering around the edges is certainly not going to fix it. If you go to get an MRI, MRIs have basically been the same for decades now. X-rays. I mean, X-ray technology, maybe they've made some advances here and there. I'm not a, I'm not a radiologist. I don't really know. But X-rays more or less have been the same since the... Since they got x-rays, it's been the same for a long time. You know what an x-ray bill looks like if you don't have insurance? I mean, I went to the doctor recently uh, for a really bad migraine. They gave me a couple of IV bags and some sh- and, a, and a shot or two to, take, to deal with the pain. And they billed my insurance company $2,000 or something like that for a couple of IV bags and a, a few shots of what are effectively NSA IDs. It's just... Anti-inflammatory drugs, Tylenol, ibuprofen, things like that. A little stronger, but same idea. $2,000 for some salty water and a couple of Tylenol shots? This is just insane, right? We all know that this is wrong, but it's such a useful tool of two things. Uh, Social engineering and wealth redistribution, and and therefore the politics around this are deeply embedded they're very toxic and it's hard to have a a real discussion because on the one hand you have those who are claiming that health care is a right okay health care is a right well how much health care is a right emergency health care we all agree on fine if you got a if you got a machete sticking out of your shoulder they got to treat you in the hospital no doubt about it If you go in the hospital you got a problem you go to the emergency room they've got to treat you that's just the way that it is or we all agree on that but unless market forces have some effect on the other aspects of healthcare, we're going to always be stuck in this anxiety-filled game, which is not a fun game to play, of is this covered? Can I go to this doctor? Should I go to this doctor? And should I have this operation? Should I have this surgery? Should I have this done? I don't know what it's going to cost. Have I used up my deduct? All this stuff. It's not the way that it is with... Your home insurance, not the way it is with your car insurance. That's pretty straightforward for the most part. But you're going to get Democrats screaming like banshees on this stuff, saying that any alterations to their beloved Obamacare is terrible. Shamont, do we have some of that audio from the Senate floor? Please play it. Mr. Schumer. Tens of millions of Americans who will... Whether they're in the exchange or not, if ACA is revealed, the Democratic leader is not in order. Vote, no. Mr. Debate is not in order during a vote. No. On behalf of elderly people who cannot Debate afford higher prescription drugs, I vote no. Because there is no replace, Debate I vote no. During vote. No. On behalf of the 1.2 million Illinois who will lose health insurance with this review of the ACA, and for all those with pre-existing conditions, I stand on prosthetic legs to vote no. Senate will be in order. I think you get the idea. Schumer, many others, grandstanding here with with their no votes, knowing they can't stop it, but they're just trying to go on on the record, even though that's not what's supposed to be happening there. You can hear the gaveling in the background saying this is not a debate. This is just casting your vote. All trying to go on the record for how terrible this is, how horrible this is. I'll tell you about some of the uh, – we can discuss some of the realities of this when we come back 
888-900-3393. Healthcare and then policing. Much more show. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. This is the Buck Sexton Show. So there's another part of the Obamacare debate that, just so we're all aware of it and on the same page with this, uh, they're claiming that there's 20 million people that get insurance through it. Really what they've done for, as we've had some of the experts on to tell us this in the past, they've expanded Medicaid, which is health care for people below a certain income level. And the health care outcomes for those individuals are almost no different from those who don't have, in the same income bracket, who don't have access to Medicaid. There's really no discernible difference according to the most detailed studies of this that have been done. So Medicaid is not good insurance, and that's the primary expansion of it. It's also uh, a budget buster for a lot of states. It's a tremendously expensive line item for a lot of the states that have it, and of course there's a tremendous amount of federal money that comes into it. One of the mechanisms of Obamacare that was thrown out by the Supreme Court was telling all states, you better expand your Medicare roles or else we'll pull Medicaid, I'm sorry, Medicare, I meant Medicaid, your Medicaid rolls or else we'll pull all federal funding for Medicaid that you currently have. That was considered too coercive. So it did lose on that score. Uh, But that's not making the system better. That's just throwing more taxpayer dollars at the system that's already in place. And the more people become educated on their health, the more they want choices and the more they want the ability, I would think, just like you do with schools, to pick and choose where you are spending your resources and your time and your effort. Um, This notion that there's always going to be somebody else who picks up the tab for health spending is really one of the reasons why it's kind of fitting right now. There's a very loud ambulance that is right underneath my window as I'm talking about healthcare spending. Um, Sorry, it's going to take a minute or two here. The New York City traffic means that even the ambulances go about five miles an hour much of the time. Uh, So the way that they're spending this money is not necessarily improving health outcomes for a lot of the individuals who are covered under Obamacare. And everyone I know who has an exchange-based plan who isn't getting Medicaid or who's not part of the Medicaid expansion says the plan is is terrible, Um, that they're just... The deductible is so high that it really only offers them catastrophic insurance coverage. And if they don't qualify for subsidies, now they're paying for a plan that they don't get to use. They're still paying out of pocket to go see doctors. 
And unless they hit a $5,000 or $7,000 ceiling of spending uh, for any given year, which that, that's, a, that's definitely a few visits to the doctor or, or a, a major procedure of some kind or significant procedure, not a major operation, but unless you do that, you're, you're subsidizing other people in the, in the insurance pool. You're not getting any benefit out of it, and you're paying full freight. So it's not a good system they've, they've set up. The whole thing needs to be reformed pretty dramatically, and I hope that the Republicans are able to do it for all of our sakes. This is where I want the best. I want the best for all Americans, and I, I want the best for the Democrats that love Obamacare and think this is great. So this is really we should all be on the same team with this. But, of course, it's been deeply politicized. And the left just thinks that this is a, an issue of good people are for Obamacare, bad people are against it. How about just we all want to make health care better, and how do we do that? Let's take Obama's name out of it. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined now by Heather McDonald. She's a Manhattan Institute senior fellow and author of the book, The War on Cops. Heather, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Thank you, Buck. Let's first talk about some stats that are getting a fair amount of uh, news coverage. Uh, well, some statistics that have come out about police and how they feel about their jobs. I've got here USA Today, based on this Pew poll, 72% of cops are reluctant to make stops. 93% of officers polled say they're more concerned about their safety than in the past. The Ferguson effect, which you popularize as a term, seems to be irrefutable as a real phenomenon at this point. Well, it sure is. And uh, the other half of the Ferguson effect is uh, the the rise in crime. It, the Ferguson effect is the combined phenomenon of of uh, officers backing off of proactive policing under the relentless charge that they're racist to try and enforce the law in minority neighborhoods and the resulting crime increase. Uh, we've also had uh, the Justice Department come out with its preliminary data for the first half of 2016 that shows that the violent crime increase that was confirmed in 2015 is, is ongoing. So we really are facing a watershed moment here unless we can turn this thing around and change the narrative about policing. Uh, we're certainly going to have a lot more black lives being taken because they are now the primary victims of this crime increase. But you could see that violent crime spread across the country. Now, you wrote a piece at ManhattanInstitute.org or Manhattan-Institute.org on the Facebook video, the torture video, and I, I want to get to that, but I first want to just ask you about the broader trends in Chicago. The numbers are staggering for the violence there over the last year, including the increase year over year. What is happening in Chicago? The Ferguson effect. It's its the primary example right now. Stops are down 82 percent uh, because cops there are facing such hostility in the streets. I spoke to a, a Chicago cop last June who told me he's never experienced such hatred in his 19 years on the job, he said it's basically an undoable job now. Uh, they're also, until just now, have been working under an absurd agreement where the ACLU 
uh, would get to review every single stop form that the officers made with their name and uh, badge number, and that had an extreme disinhibiting effect on officers. But it's it's really just the larger narrative that is dominant today. So you have now 3,400 people being shot last year. That's one person every two hours, overwhelmingly black victims. If you believe the Black Lives Matter narrative, since those victims were black, you would think, gee, those Chicago cops must have been pretty busy shooting a lot of people. Well, the Chicago cops last year shot 25 people, virtually all armed or dangerous. That's 0.6% of all shooting victims. So everything the public thinks it knows about race, crime, and policing from the Black Lives Matter movement is wrong. Now, Heather, I've seen you go up against people on the other side of this issue, on the on the left, activists, community organizers, Black Lives Matter spokespersons of, of one kind or, or another. What do they offer? When you're in these debates, especially now that we see the numbers, what do they suggest for reform? When, when you point out, look at what's happening in Chicago, look at the Ferguson effect in cities across the country, do they just they offer up what more community policing? Is it vague? Are there any specifics? What do they say? Well, people can see for themselves a good example of it. Last night I did a debate uh, on a show called IQ Squared that's now online with uh, two people defending the proposition that the, that is the other side was defending the proposition that policing is racially biased. And the arguments that they made were quite extraordinary, basically uh, denying that there's a violent crime problem in the black community and trying to allege that, well, there's all of these uh, white-on-white drive-by shootings that are somehow going ignored or there's a vast crime problem that is not violent crime that is being ignored. And as far as having anything to say to those victims of violent crime. You know, the three-year-old boy in Chicago who was shot on Father's Day, who's now paralyzed for life, uh, or a 73-year-old man who was watering his lawn and was shot in the back by a teen robber when he refused to hand over his wallet. There's just, there's nothing they say. I, it's, it's just amazing. The, the denial the refusal to take responsibility for the breakdown of social order in inner-city neighborhoods is is just astounding. I want to direct people to your piece uh, on ManhattanInstitute.org, Chicago Video, A Window into a Depraved Culture. I was on Rush Limbaugh's show when the video initially uh, broke, when that became a, a, a news story. It faded very quickly, as I knew it would. I think it was spoken about, it was media coverage of it for about 24 hours, and compare that to things like the Trayvon Martin, Martin shooting and, and the way the media covers other, other things, and I think the bias to everybody is quite clear. But in your piece, Chicago Video, Window into a Depraved Culture, I, I just wanted to give you the floor to, to walk us through the argument you make in this, in this piece. Well, I think the country is in denial about the cultural breakdown in the inner city, and they're also in denial about the degree of anti-white racism among blacks. This is a very, very taboo topic uh, to bring up. 
but the reigning conceit that uh, the dominant form of racism today is white racism is ludicrous. I, I spend a considerable amount of time in the inner city, and anybody who has, I think, is going to confirm to me with me that there is a, a strong undercurrent of anti-white animus. It's not universal. There's plenty of law-abiding inner-city residents who are as colorblind as anybody else and, and treat everybody equally. Uh, but there is a, nevertheless, historically a strong current there. And even if there weren't, we now, our elites, are putting out in such a unanimous and highly amplified way a narrative of racial victimology that is constantly telling blacks, and it comes out of the academy, it comes out of the media, it comes out of the government, that they are the victims of incessant white oppression, that even if there wasn't this existing white hatred, one shouldn't be surprised that it it would come into being uh, because how else would you expect people to react if they are fed this narrative that America is determined to keep the boot on the back of blacks' necks? The book that you mentioned, and it got a tremendous amount of general media praise when it came out. It was on all these lists for being the best. Uh, Tonessie Coates, Between the World and Me, you say what I've heard from others who have read it, but they generally don't say it out loud or they don't want to make too much noise about it, that it has a very destructive message. Absolutely. It's it's just, it's, it's a, a, a classic trope of the most delusional racial victimology. He says that it is the very heritage, ongoing heritage of America to destroy the black body. This is somebody who is completely blind to the ubiquitous efforts on the part of every elite institution to do as much for blacks, to promote them, to, to admit them, promote them as they can. Uh, and, and Coates is just determined to see himself uh, as a victim and to tell other blacks that they should walk around with a massive chip on their shoulder. And, and that attitude, which is catching uh, and... It is supplemented by the universities every single day of the academic year uh, is an extremely destructive one. It, it, it breeds racial tension and racial hatred and sometimes, as we saw in this video, racial violence. Heather McDonald is a Manhattan Institute senior fellow, author of The War on Cops, which you can get on Amazon, and I commend to all of you listening. Heather, I just have one more for you. Uh, I grew up here in New York City. I try to tell the audience sometimes what a different place it is now versus what it was in the early 90s when I was a, a young guy, I'd go around the city and staying out kind of late and seeing the things that I saw. It, it, it was a completely different place. Uh, the violence numbers then versus now, it's, it's like a stock market crash when you graph it. Um, 
Is that possible for Chicago, do you think, under a Trump administration and a Department of Justice that is going to approach these things differently than the eight years of the Obama administration? Could we see and are you seeing the beginnings of the consensus necessary to turn Chicago around the way violence in New York was turned around? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, Trump himself is, I think, a little misinformed about the scope of government power when it comes to federal government power, when it comes to local policing. He has said uh, over the last several months that he personally, as, as head of the federal government, would turn Chicago around. While I applaud his attention to Chicago, something that has not been at all present uh, in the Obama administration, Trump is wrong that the federal government has any pol- real uh, immediate policy tools for changing crime. Crime is overwhelmingly a local matter for local police chiefs to solve. What Trump can do that is more subtle, but, but I think as more important, is to change the narrative about policing and not to uh, constantly repeat this idea that policing is racist and that blacks are being oppressed by the cops. What we're facing today and what, what was brought out in the Pew poll that you referenced in the beginning of the show, Buck, is a real uh, assault on police morale. And they feel like they are not going to be supported if they go into the high crime inner city areas and, and try and protect people there. If that can be turned around, then you will see Chicago turn around. So it's a somewhat more attenuated process. But uh, if Trump can speak out clearly on behalf of proactive policing and and let Chicago police know that uh, they are not going to be viewed as a racist by their president if they generate more stop activity in gang rendered areas, that that will be a a big uh, plus. Heather McDonald, author of The War on Cops. Thank you very much for joining us, Heather. Appreciate you making the time. Thank you, Buck. Team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, team, thank you for being with me today for the show. Tomorrow will be live from the Freedom Hut, of course. And we got a lot of freestyling to do. I got all kinds of crazy stuff planned. You're going to want to check it, check that out. Join us and, uh, as always, hang out in the Freedom Hut. All the latest and greatest. Um, I think I might get into... This is just interesting to me. It looks like Apple... Uh, maker of my iPhone and, and all that stuff, uh, Apple is getting into the content business, which means that you've got Netflix, you're going to have Apple, Amazon has already stepped into this space. These digital behemoths are going to be content creators and content distributors at the same time. It's going to be changing the game. I wonder at what point this is really going to have uh, ramifications for the cable, uh, for the cable industry. Uh, I wonder... 
when there'll be that shift. If you ever want to, if you're ever curious, you can go. I think it's a pretty famous chart. You can see that MP3s existed for a while while CDs were still being bought in large numbers. And then I think it was right around 2003, 2004, after MP3s have been around for years. I remember having little crappy MP3 players. They'd break and I'd use them really just at the gym. And then all of a sudden CDs just stopped. I don't think the transition to cable is going to happen like that. But if these digital platforms keep getting bigger and bigger, I wonder when you're going to see some real movement in that direction. Because i gotta, I got to say, I, I love some of the stuff that Netflix and uh, Stars on Demand and uh, uh, Amazon has done some good stuff. I think Amazon was the first one to do The Last Kingdom, which is a show that I, I really like. And I, oh no, maybe Netflix is doing that one now. I can't even keep it, I can't even keep it straight. Or BBC was originally involved. Idea that I'm having, I might do books with bucks. Some of you have been asking for photos of my bookshelf. Maybe it would be more fun to do a Facebook Live where I'm in front of the bookshelf and I just pull some down that I like and we sort of chat about it a little bit and you can tell me books you like and it might just be a fun thing to mix it up. I'm also thinking about doing the the cooking with Buck, but it might be history cooking with Buck. So we'll talk, I'll make eggs and we'll also talk about, I, I don't know, a famous historical story that involves eggs or something. I'm still formulating some of these ideas in my head. So we will uh, continue to take suggestions and recommendations on that. I love it when I get messages or uh, posts from any of you on Facebook or Twitter uh, saying, hey, check this out, try this, this would be a fun thing to do on the show. So you guys are all a part of spicing up the Freedom Hut. Uh, thank you for joining. Please download today's show. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud if you haven't already. Subscribing is the best. And until tomorrow, my friends, my extended family, Shields High. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.